stroke, Canada have a canvas. Canada, 48 strokes a minute, 48 strokes a minute. This is what they want to do. Canadians now just start to eat out each and every stroke. A puddle of water leaves the finish. So huge and immense the amount of power that they are putting down. Welcome to The Road Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice. Crucial role in South Africa. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello ladies and gents and welcome to another awesome episode of The Rose Show. This is Lawrence Britton as always and with me. It's Jake Green guys and yeah we are really excited to announce that we have uh, another interview and this time around we, we spoke to Adam Creed from Canada. I think uh, he's definitely one of the more articulate and insightful people we've spoken to and uh, on top of that he is a fantastic storyteller and Straight off the gun, we were really immersed in the amazing conversation that we had with Adam. I think, uh, you know, we were really, you know, the the interview was definitely up there with the, the best banter we've had and just going through, not necessarily going through a linear order on what his career was like, but just, you know, going in, talking about the philosophy, talking about the training, talking about his thoughts on different things, you know, lots, lots of fun, a bit of sidetracking every now and then, but overall, fantastic. For sure. And I mean, as Jake said, he was such a, a good storyteller. And, you know, I think he's just someone who spent a lot of time thinking about rowing, thinking about his time in rowing. And, you know, he has a book out, he's done a TED talk, he uh, has his own podcast. So there's a lot of content on him. And there was, uh, and he spent a lot of time talking about rowing. So he really understood it. He's really thought about it a lot. But let's get into his results because he has an unbelievable international track record he started uh, his international career in 2002 and he rode till uh, the beijing olympics in 2008 so only um six years six seven years and out of those years with he raced at 13 regattas uh, 13 regattas internationally all in the eight out of that 10 wins so only uh finishing off the top of the podium three times and uh, only finishing off the podium twice. So 11 podiums out of the 13 regattas. And on top of that, he has three Henley wins, which is just unbelievable for someone to have raced for that that much and lost so little. Um, Jake, what did you think of those results? Yeah, I think the, the results speak for themselves. And uh, you guys will you'll hear that you know Adam is a very, very proficient rower. And I think his... His ability to understand and navigate, you know, the mental the mental game of rowing is probably uh, exceptional. And uh, I think the insight he provides there, not just on like when it's going well, but you know, the reflections on when it wasn't going well. I think this is the probably the best we've he- heard from someone in terms of just you know articulating really well, like maybe what things weren't going so well at the time, and then you know how how he th- thought he could have fixed that or the the you know the the, the changes that he made after those bad times that brought him to new heights, you know, definitely right up there. And again, you know, that gold medal in Beijing, that race, you know, what a pinnacle, what a, a apex mountain for someone like Adam to achieve. I think definitely well-deserved. 
Yeah, and I mean, we've already chatted to Jake Wetzel. So if you're listening, if this is one of your first episodes uh, and you, you you enjoy this eight race, 2008 eight race, which I think is phenomenal, go back and listen to Jake Wetzel as well from the same boat, same crew, and just a different perspective on uh, their, their careers and, uh, and those results. And, oh, man, I love that race. That race is unbelievable. But I think Adam also has like almost like a movie story arc on his career, you know, joining in, yeah. just so good uh, right out the, bo- uh, out the box, straight into the eight, just slots in and they win or, uh, like straight away. Um, and then having the disaster of 2004, you know, we spoke to um, Brian Volpenheim where they win in 2004 and they'd steal it away from, uh, from Canada and they have a horrendous uh, Olympic Games. And then to come back into 2008 and, and stamp their authority like they did is – just such a testament to that system. And I think Adam has thought a lot about it. You can hear when he talks about the the disappointing Olympics, how, you know, he really understands what they went wrong and how that burnt him. And he didn't even want to come back to rowing, got coaxed back in, and then how different their uh, teamwork was and their culture of the team when they were going into to Beijing. So, I mean, unbelievable. I thought that was fantastic. Such a good episode. Yeah, definitely, definitely up there with one of the the best um, on the row show. And yeah, I think besides that, thanks so much for your support, guys. It's uh, it's been amazing of lately. We've really been enjoying the engagement on you know social media, um, Instagram, and, and the messages and whatnot that you guys have sent us. Um, maybe just a little update. Lawrence and I are going to go into you know our last phase of uh, of training and preparation for the Olympics. So we, you'll probably hear this as a scheduled recording. Um, so we got to kind of lock it down a bit from here on, but we've hopefully we've scheduled this um, so that you guys hear this um, while we we overseas. But uh, besides that, yeah, enjoy the episode for sure. And as Jakey said, our, to our patrons, you guys are absolute legends. You really drive the show, give us that support that uh, allows us to put out this quality content. And this is definitely going to be our last uh, interview. So uh, before the games, and for our patrons, you guys are going to get this. Uh, as we're recording and just before we fly out to Tokyo and we'll just, uh, if you're listening on the free feed, you're going to get this uh, a few weeks later and then part two will come out just before the games. So yeah, enjoy. And in part one, oh, we didn't even cover what, what kind of in part one is, is, is start in the sport, what, uh, how he got into the eight in the first, uh, the first little bit straight into the bit of Beijing. Cause you get straight into that crew and how, what made that crew so good. And then we go back to the disappointing uh, games and then how he managed to turn that around and how he got brought back into the team just before the Beijing Olympics. So, guys, that's enough of us. Enjoy and we'll see you on the flip side. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another awesome interview on The Rose Show. And today we are honored to be joined by Adam Creek, a gold medalist in the Canadian 8 in Beijing in 2008 and he he's been in the he was in the Canadian team for a number of years, um, you know, working his magic there in the boat. Adam, thanks for for coming on the show. It's awesome to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here. So you know, I think uh, obviously we 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 had a, a hiccup last week where we tried to get uh, our episode recorded, and uh, you know the the internet gods frowned upon us. So this is round two, but only just the start. So I think we're going to kick it off just like uh, like before. And when we went through your results, uh, you had actually a phenomenal rowing career. You rowed 
for two Olympic uh, cycles in the the Canadian team. And out of the thirteen regattas that you you raced, you were ten of them. You came away with gold and eleven podiums, and on top of that, three Henley wins. So you really rocketed right to the top uh, as you joined the the Canadian national team. And we wanted to know because we got into it a bit last week about uh, how you started off on the oil rigs and you're working there and, and you really wanted to get back into rowing and 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 then and see uh, where that could go for you. So tell us a bit about the transition from working on the oil rig, what that was like, into uh, getting back to rowing and then making that first World Cup in the Canadian Men's 8. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, well, it's, you know, I was pretty lucky, I think. You know, obviously, I, I think I was a good athlete. I trained hard, worked hard, uh, but also I had uh, – very incredible, high talented athletes who uh, I was able to learn from, row alongside, compete with, and the Canadian team all encapsulated in you know a great coach, Mike Spracklin. So I think that uh, that was certainly you know part and parcel to the success and the incredible career. Uh, it was it was certainly a fun ride. I'm pretty grateful to actually have had it. It was uh, it, it was a it was a ton of fun, but it all started. I, I grew up in a pretty small average town in London, Ontario, uh, in the center of Canada. And it would had this reputation of being the most average town in Canada. And that was <laughs> you know, my dad. In fact, we had the, uh, the first McDonald's in Eastern Canada was actually built in London, Ontario because it was a, a testing point for all the McDonald's across you know Canada. And so if something was going to be successful in London, Ontario, it would be successful everywhere. So my dad would say, look, the first McDonald's in Canada was here and it was successful. You should be proud. You live in the most average town in Canada. <laughs> and so <laughs> this was, this was my, this was my upbringing. You know, my dream was to be an accountant who rode his bike to work. That was the, that was the dream. Obviously it wasn't uh, what happened. I rode in, in high school, had some incredible coaches, Walt Benko, Peter Carson. Uh, I rode on a tiny little creek called the Thames River <laughs> in London, Ontario. So, See, there's a theme going uh, there in, in London, yeah. Ontario. Yeah, we were just down the road from Paris, Ontario. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, and... And after, well, when I was rowing in high school, my, my coach, he took my dad aside, then he took me aside and he said, Hey, look, Adam Creek, he's, he's an Olympian, could be an Olympic gold medalist. He just doesn't know it yet. And he has, he was a really good coach in high school. Uh, he encouraged being a multi-sport athlete, which is pretty cool. And I really appreciate, which, uh, avoided burnout on the path and he didn't push me too hard. He was pretty smart. He said, you know what, when you're in high school race, have some fun. If you want to go all the way, make sure that you're, you're saving up because you, you really need to push in your twenties. If you, if you want to do this Olympic thing right now, it's just for fun. Uh, so have as much fun with it as you can. Jeez, that's so, uh, that's some serious wisdom, I think, from a from a school coach. Because you know, usually it's just flat out make it make every day count. And and by the time you finish uh, high school, you you never kind of want to see a rowing boat again. No, it was great, and it's, it came from he was a volunteer. You know, he ran a window factory. He was a professional. 
he he knew i think he had a really good sense of how sport impacts your life in the grand scheme of things how it how it fits in and and too often we make the mistake especially when we're young thinking you know that sport is life versus sport is part of life and uh obviously right now you know when you're training for the olympic sport is truly life for the next (laughs) you know until tokyo happens or until the olympics happen but again when you're young it's important to have these other pieces otherwise you 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 break down your 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 brain stops working your heart falls out of it uh you know depression anxiety you know fear of missing out the you know you wanting to quit wanting to stop and rowing's hard enough as it is so the you know the coach my coach walt menko especially he was very smart very wise very grounded uh, and I'm I'm really grateful for the guidance that he gave me, and that was part of the reason why I decided to stop out uh, from the journey, you know, the Olympic journey. You know, he had said I had the potential, but I thought, you know, I don't know that I have. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy background, so I didn't have you know the support or the money to take the journey. So I I thought, why don't I go into the resource economy? You know, that's that's Canada's, uh, you know, that's the Canadian dream essentially mm. go out into the resource economy, you know, work out of mine, work in big oil, work in forestry, you'll know, make a bunch of money and then come back into the city. And then you'll have enough capital to start up a city life. You know, that's, you know, that's what I call the Canadian dream. So I was, you know, I was on the journey pursuing the Canadian dream, went out, worked on these oil rigs up in Northern Alberta, Northern BC, Northern Saskatchewan. Uh, You know, in the summers, it gets really hot up to, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, And then in the winter, it gets down to minus 40, minus 50. Uh, So I, I went out there and it was hard. It was hard work. You know, you're working 12 hours a day, heavy physical work. You're moving big steel. You're operating, uh, you know, winches. You're sh- digging ditches. Uh, you start at the bottom of the the food chain, so you're the new guy who does all the hardest work. And uh, I, you know, you I worked up through the ranks. I got from you know lease hand to roughneck to motorman. Didn't quite make Derek man, but uh, <laughs> Derek a, man's guy. Quite the titles. I know they're great, you know, <laughs> great titles uh, and great personalities when you're up there. You know, I I still remember this one guy, his name was Big John. He was about, you'd have made a good rower actually, uh, if he trained, but he was about six foot five, 250 pounds, had a ponytail down to his back, mid back. He had earrings all over his ears. But the thing that stood out to me was he had split his tongue right down the center. Uh, And he'd stick it out. It was like a forked tongue. And he'd say things like, I've got ladies lined up around the block. (laughs) But he was, yeah, he was a guy. Yeah, he he was a guy. And just... He medicated. He wasn't really happy with because it's again working on the rigs, working this kind of physical work is hard. So he would self medicate. He would smoke two giant joints throughout the day. Uh, he'd smoke two packs of cigarettes, drink two giant things of coffee every night, you know, eight to twelve beers, and just on repeat while we were there. And it was just like I just I just hate it so much out here. Yeah, and it and to a certain extent it reminds me of winter training. Essentially, you know, when you hate yourself in the middle, like it, racing is seven months away and you're thinking, why the heck am I doing this? Yeah. Why am I here? And, um, you know, 
so the, I think there was an a, there was an element of um, grittiness that was developed in that process, as well as just building the the cash reserves necessary to um, to make you know to make an Olympic push. Uh, although I'd say at that point in time, I was still terrified. I was terrified to even admit to myself that I even wanted to go to the Olympics because it seemed so far away and was such a um, it seemed like such an insurmountable task. Yeah. And after, but then after working for a year, you know, built up some cash reserves, got a little, <laughs> little grittier and came down to Vancouver Island, where, which is drastically different. You know, it's the Hawaii of Canada, if you want to call it that in the winter, it gets down to usually the winters around, you know, four degrees Celsius, you know, every once in a while you can drop and get some snow. And then the summer, it's usually around uh, 25 degrees Celsius. And then it's everything in between. It's, it's relatively mild for Canadian standards. Um, came down here, went to the University of Victoria, had a great uh, university experience uh, where had a great coach, uh, Howie Campbell, and really good athletes. There were a lot of national team athletes who were uh, also training at the university program. And so they were um, they were trying to drag me out. Uh, Spracklin had just showed up. So I showed up in uh, 2000. Spracklin showed up in 2001. And when Spracklin first showed up in Canada, Canada hadn't had much success since 1992 when Spracklin was there last. So there was, there was a glut of knowledge. Uh, there was a glut of, uh, you know, uh, of experience in, you know, in the group that was training. So there were two guys, uh, Joe Stankovicious and Kevin Light, who decided that they're going to train with, um, Mike Spracklin, another guy, uh, Andrew Hoskins showed up. So there were three. And then had this other guy, Adam Coda, he showed up. And they started this, uh, and then another guy, Matt Swick, came. And they started this group, like two guys, three guys, four guys were training. And they, uh, this guy came out from Winnipeg. You know, and, um, you know, people come from all over Canada, right? Came up from Winnipeg, Jeff Powell, and there was five. They said, you know, it's the eight. We want the eight. We want to do the eight. It's all about the eight. Um, and is that and so, from you guys or is that from uh, Spracklin? I think it was from Spracklin. Yeah. And what he would say, you know, the, the Blue Ribbon event is the eight and the single. And that's what we want to do. You know, I think he would go if he was certain that he'd win a gold medal in other boat classes. He's, he'd go for that, but he he knew the eight. He knew how to make. He knew how to build a culture and establish a style of stroke and really and really make that style of stroke adapted you know, by the group. And so he's he had he had a program that people were able to buy in and that was you know that was what was amazing about the culture of of the Spracklin program cuz I, I you know when i was in high school you know, i was a you know, i pulled maybe a 630 type erg and then i was in university i um i got down to close to 6 minutes in the erg and i thought i pulled hard you know, I thought I pulled hard. And then I remember that someone got injured. Uh, they were training for the 2001 uh, um, 
world championships. Someone got injured. They needed a substitute in three seat. And uh, Kevin Lake calls me up and he says, Creek, you know, we need, we need you in the boat. And I think, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll come out for a row. And it was, you know, it was like the sky's opening. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Those first strokes. I, I had no, oh, it was 100% a Eureka moment. 100%. You know, the, like just to feel the power the sheer and utter power, but the you know the contrast that rowing is right. It's it, you you're required to be nimble and lithe and r- relaxed and uh, you know one, but you're also required to be aggressive and violent and brutal. Mm. And somehow all of this was encapsulated in the rowing style in this eight and. I, you just have this with all the power around you, uh, like a ste- I've never had a steady state row that had been so hard. And all of a sudden, you're just, I was just remember thinking like I got it. I can't. I got to keep yeah. putting like weight, like, energy, like, and power on this blade. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think a lot of athletes have have a moment like that. You know, even I remember back I was uh, racing in the junior national team, so I was still at school, and we're racing our uh, senior SA South African champs. You are drinking out of a mason jar. I hope that that's just straight vodka out of, the, out of the jar. Well, I'm going to tell you another story, and then we're <laughs> going to get back to your story. But there is a, this, this is water. It's a, it's a two-liter mason jar that I drink out of. Fantastic. But uh, I, I went in 2007, I went to Estonia for a 1,000-meter erg competition. Uh, my, my grandfather's an old Estonian. He, was, uh, uh, he always escaped during the, the war. You know, my dad was born in a refugee camp, came to Canada. He was an old shop putter. And so there, the Estonians would keep on calling me up and be like, hey, well, you got to come back. You got to come back to Estonia and play with us. And so I went back one February to Estonia. They have, you know, it's a big thing, you know, a thousand meters. Who can do it the, the, the fastest? And there is this Belarusian guy. I forget his name, but he is what? He's like six foot eight. You know, 240 pounds, monster. you know, big monster, just monster. I don't know. I'm trying to convert that to what the rest of the no, world I uses. We, we, you know, like we, we, 205, yeah. you know, 205, one, you know, 110 you know, kilo. Yeah. And and it's a, he was a monster, uh, essentially. But before, before the race, there's like one nice restaurant in, in Tallinn, in Estonia. And so everyone was there. And the, he orders this big, like, he orders this big glass of, uh, like, a Mickey, essentially, of vodka and a big, you know, pint glass of orange juice. And he has another pint glass there. And he goes and he takes the Mickey, the, like, he essentially pours the Mickey into the empty pint glass full of vodka and then he takes the orange juice and he just dips it in, colors it orange, <laughs> and then just drinks it all. And then the next day he crushes it. I, you know, he averages like a, a 118, 119 split for a thousand yeah. meters. That's outrageous. <laughs> that is outrageous. <laughs> yeah. And where did you come? Where did I come? I came second. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I only pulled like a 121 yeah, or something. It was, you needed that mason yeah. jar with the vodka and orange juice to get you through the rest. I know. I couldn't, I've never been, I'm a sloppy drunk. I'm not good at drinking. 
<laughs> well, I can be. You know, it's like I can have fun, but I the next morning, I know some people. I was who Derek Porter, Canadian. Um, yeah, the Scottish smoking. Yeah, so Derek Porter, what he would do before his he, and the physiologist would get pissed off at him, you know, before all the lactate tests, he's like, oh, I want to make sure I'm good at the lactate test. He'd drink a giant shanty, and there's something to be said about the buffering capacity of of alcohol on a lactic acid and so he would he would drink the shanty before these tests and blow it off the out of the water and they get really pissed off at him he's like what you know this is what i do before an erg test and it works so i'll do it before this lactate threshold test <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you see like we've heard of it right you've heard of these guys even in especially in in college or uh university where there's you know less impetus on performance and you want to make sure that you're partying too but uh, People get really drunk, and the next day they they drop a like their PB on a you know on a six k uh, or a two k. I've uh, I've had some experiences where you know I've had a good night out and then done a monster ergo the next day, and I felt terrible. Yeah. But I get on the ergo, and for some reason it just pounds. We we joke in the team. We we say you you got to put yourself at a rock bottom, and the only way you can go is up. <laughs> we <laughs> we also say that uh, that that's it's such a risky move, and you can only because uh, you especially when you're training for like a, a university race or something after post the, the international season, and then you say you can only really do that once, you know, once a year or, or once a season because you know you you kind of so embarrassed that you've kind of let yourself slip, and now you're at the session, and now you need to up your game and make sure that you. You don't let the team down. But if that starts to happen more than once, yeah. then you don't have that kind of uh, ability to, to keep turning it around. <laughs> no, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a special cheat code you can use every once in a while, but not all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, getting, getting, back on the, getting back on the rowing. Adam, you, you know, you, 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 you're in the, the, in the team now. And then, you know, I'm really excited to talk about 2002 because... Yeah, we go. Canadian age rocks up on the scene. You know, you have a first outing at the World Cup. You pick up, a, you know, a bronze medal. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, I think you, 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 I don't know, I'm not sure how you gauge that result. But, you know, bronze medal right off the bat's not a bad, you know, not a, not a, not too bad. And then world champs, you guys rock up and, and take the gold. So that's a phenomenal start. And, you know, I'm really, uh, um, interested to hear like what were your feelings and was that the exalt results you were expecting or was that kind of like an out of the water like wow we we actually you know we on the world stage now we can bring it um against the best in the world it, it was out of the water in 2002 um <clears throat> lucerne when we got the bronze medal everyone was over the moon especially especially the older guys in the boat i was the i was the young one when I was only 21 and, you know, at Lucerne and Seville that year, some of the other guys were, you know, 28 and, you know, better developed athletically. Uh, the, because they didn't even, the men's eight didn't even make the A final in the Sydney Olympics, you know, underperformed or, or did they even qualify? I don't even know if they qualified in Sydney. Um, oh, maybe they did. But they like the the men's sweep program had been underperforming in you know in Atlanta and Sydney, and and they were just going for the A final. They said we just want to be in the A final. We want to slowly work through this. And by 
pushing in and uh, being in the fight in Lucerne, we were um, we were surprised that we could compete with the world. It was shocking, and it gave us confidence, and it gave us something to work towards. And then we leaned into the training, you know, and this is the Spracklin, the Spracklin philosophy. And it took me a while to actually process this, but this is how I articulate it from just a physiological perspective. Spracklin puts his biggest emphasis of training in the period between Lucerne and the World Championships or Lucerne and the the Olympics. And this is the massive supercompensation phase. And this is where we have the divine craziness of work, you know, shows up and, you know, anaerobic piece after anaerobic piece, you know, instead of spending, you know, an hour a day at your anaerobic threshold, you might be spending two, three hours a day at the threshold and use, and essentially from, from what I've, you know, what I can, you know, pull from it, you know, observationally is that you train one, the entire winter for this phase of where you're pushing your body to the max and you're expanding it and you're ballooning it. And then, and then you taper down and that's all your training just goes into the super compensation phase right before the, right before the taper. So you're trying to beat yourself up as much as possible. Um, well, you know, when you're young, you're just trying to beat yourself up when you're older, you're trying to beat yourself up without getting injured. Uh, <laughs> the you know find, trying to find that balance but um the so what happened between lucerne 2002 and seville 2002 we went into that was my first time it was uh the core group of guys you know about five the five of them they'd been through it once before at the previous world championships so it was their second time going through this this massive um, this massive training phase, you know, big volumes, big intensity, and then the taper, and then you don't know how to deal with the taper because you've never felt that juiced ever before in your mm. life. It's I, a very strange like, feeling, actually, that that taper at the end of the season. Yeah, it's it's it almost takes like two or three or four seasons to really get used to it, and then especially for the Olympics, that's why I think that. Uh, you know, add on the nerves of the Olympics to the taper, you're, you're juicy. Like you are prime. Like everything's just like, right. And like energy's there. It's yeah. It's such a good uh, point that you, that you brought up, you know, you, 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 you spent the whole year fatigued all the time. You never once feel good because you either you training flat out or you injured or, or sick and trying to recover and then get back into to beating yourself up, as you said. And then you get this week where, where things start to come down and you start to feel good. And then you, you can't even believe how good you feel. You know, our, our coach always says, oh, you, you need to feel like a caged lion at, uh, at that point of the season. And yeah, I mean, so it's true. Just, so crazy and yeah i think you're right i think it does take a, a a you know a good few seasons to to also to realize how good you're going to feel and uh to kind of trust that you you're going to really feel good later on well and how, well, and how to manage that you know i yeah. remember having difficulty knowing how to manage that and wondering you know i would get i get I, when i was younger i get just get in a lot of trouble right afterwards too because you're you're juicy you do the race and you still have it that's why the parties are so crazy afterwards because everyone's still you know ramped up 
but the um, we wouldn't know anything about yeah. that yeah, oh you wouldn't oh it's <laughs> 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 oh, good <laughs> yeah good yeah good times afterwards too uh, the but the I, I like trying to figure out how to yeah how to deal with that much power and energy in your system is, is difficult and then the nerves of you know the nerves of the competition compound it because not only are you you tapered and juicy and and you know like a lion in a cage but you're also like a lion in a cage where they've all of a sudden put out some like young supple calves and then you know everyone's watching you and cheering you eat the calves eat the calves <laughs> and so like there's like all of a sudden it you know it amplifies what uh you know what you're experiencing and it takes takes a while to say do you know, do i um can i over like will i overexert myself and that's something you, you know especially when you're young right go you you have so much power in the taper that you you push so hard that you can't pace it to the end because you've you're not used to having that much that energy and you say oh if I have all of this energy then I burn it off um you know this was the phase that I went through first I pushed too hard and burn out second I wouldn't push hard enough and not really realize my potential and then I I finally felt like I figured it out in you know the last quadrennial in uh, uh Munich and then um uh, Beijing, where I knew how to find that um, find that spot where you could you had the juice, you had the nerves, you had the energy, and you could drive into the blackness and stay on the edge, and and you knew you knew how to get to that limit and keep pushing it, but not you know you know stand at stand at the devil's doorstep, but not quite go in and i mean we're we going to jump around a little bit yeah but you know the eight is particularly like that because you know there's you know in, in the smaller boats there's ebb and flow and there's kind of time for the race to unfold whereas the eight you have to time that thing you have to be right on the limit the whole way down the track if one person uh lets up a little bit you know that eight is 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 going to lose those shot those seats and they're never going to make it uh, back yeah. into the race and you got to so, be riding shotgun right off the off the start line because of you know the the intensity and i can't imagine just the the raw power and you know the quick twitch muscle fiber and just the just to get your nose out front so you you're really starting at max intensity and you're just staying on that intensity yeah, well, there's. We spent a lot of time training that start and getting that boat, especially in the eight. It it matters so much because the the boat with eight, you know, eight big guys, the coxswain, you know, the equipment, you know, it's close to a ton of st like steady, um, you know, dead inertia, and so you have to bring that up. You bring it up to speed and it, it takes a lot. And we would have, yeah, we would work, we'd work over and over the first stroke, the second stroke, you know, the first three strokes, the first five strokes, you know, over and over and over and over again. How, like, how do we pick this boat up out of the water? How do we get the speed? Uh, we would tr constantly, every time we do an erg twice, we usually do an erg twice a week. At the end of every erg session, we'd always do three three by max. So three strokes as hard as you can go. And so we were always training that all through the year. 
it was like the first one, two, three strokes of the race, you know, how do you pick it up and how do you get the speed on the boat and then, you know, leave it on. And that's, you know, in, in the eight race, it's, you know, what was our, our strategy was simple. I can, I guess I can walk you through what our strategy was. You know, we dig deep and, you know, put the blades really deep, push the oars out into the oar locks, lean into it. And, uh, and then you just, the first five strokes are free. So pull as hard as you freaking can. And so like deep, dark puddles are, go, 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 you get it up. And then we'd spin it till about, uh, <clears throat> we'd start spinning it. And our big stroke was thir- their 13th stroke. So the 13th stroke was the biggest, hardest, uh, most virile, uh, sexiest, you know, manliest stroke of the race, you know, and if you're going to show your mom one stroke of the race, it was the That's 13th the stroke. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, Bam! And so we would go, we'd, we'd lift it up to about a 52, 54, and then we'd settle down to like a 48. And then we'd start powering it long and, and stretching it out and then settling it into, you know, to mid, mid to high, mid to low 40s. And then we had around a minute into the race. So everyone goes through this physiological transformation where you burn up a lot of the free glycogen, where you start to move into, you know, a, you know, aerobic metabolism, you know, the anaerobic metabolism is, uh, is getting used up. And so you start to really hurt and you start, yeah. everyone hurts. Like you hurt, yeah. your competition hurts and you start to get into that grogginess of like, what the fuck did i just sign up for like this is like why did i do this again like this is you idiot yeah Yeah. and so that that starts coming in and so when you're and it's kind of it's crazy to think about because you're pushing as hard as you possibly can and hard as you think you can but we would have we would train in this 10 stroke piece around the minute you know, so it was, and it ended up being flexible. It ended up being between 45 seconds and a minute 15. And we'd start to see like, is any boat moving on us? Or are we sticking with any boat at that time? And so at that point in time, we'd, you know, we had Brian, who was our coxswain, who was looking around and he'd look for like, are we sticking? Are we not moving away? Is someone else coming at us? And and the moment he saw that, he'd call off that boat and he'd say, okay, 10 strokes. Now let's, you know, let's take seats on the boat that's moving on us. And, and then everyone would just drop 10, you know, 10 strokes on top of that, which is, which is kind of crazy. And then the, but then we take, we take seats, we take seats on like, that. And we, yeah, I feel like that's quite a, it's quite an important part of the race. And especially if you dish it up there, because that's the part where you're hurting, but you know that you come back online, you know, if you get through that kind of transition as your, as your, your kind of energy systems change if you can punch through that uh, transition you know you're going to feel better at like the two minute mark uh once mm-hmm. your body kind of gets back into it so i feel like that's such a kind of important or, or important part of the race where you know making a, a good move like that is 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 going to really capitalize well yeah well uh, you got it attacking the pain and a two about two minutes in or even a little less than that we it would be around the 500 meter mark when uh, when you're starting to really get into that aerobic push, uh, that's when we would, you know, hundred strokes through the middle, you know, power long, um, right. Holding the body angle through the catch, you know, keeping the blade linear, uh, 
just keep avoiding digging. You know, we were we were a messy and uh, like we were a messy crew in Beijing. You know, we were <laughs> we were not clean. You know, it was you know especially like you had Jake on. Jake was one of our worst offenders. He was oh. is uh, <laughs> a messy rower, uh, yeah, but I, I, like aggressive. Yeah, I could say just oh. from watching the videos, Jake Vetzel, just like the visual, the visual, um, just looking at him row. I mean, one thing I love about your your Canadian eight when I watch the the race videos is that uh, it's definitely when you look at the eight, it's like you, you can see the power. You can see the power going through the stroke and like the, you know, the, you can tell you guys are pulling as hard as you can. And there are a lot of crews yeah. out there where it's like. You know, it's it just it looks. You know, they're just in unison and and sublime and superficial. Not that you guys weren't, but like you guys really. You know, you're talking about all the different aspects about you know the rowing stroke. You guys really, I, I felt, you know, took that power aspect. You know, of rowing the eight, and you really did. You know, make that it looked like you made that the core of the way you went. And then Jake Vetzel, you know, bald headed guy, easy to spot in the boat, and just mouth open. Ah, just cranking there, and it's it's insane. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome to, well, to be just, here well, and the and that was like I was always a like like a strong athlete, and a good athlete, and that was the boat, you know, with Jake. Yeah, Jake and Malcolm was another like oh, aerobic beast. Yeah. Had this other guy, Dominic Zeiderly, and. Uh, you know, you know, Andrew Bird, like we had a, a freaking our two seat, you know, our two seat was a giant, you know, that's the, that's the crazy thing. And, and I've, I remember specifically, we do these training pieces in North Italy, just outside of Lake, Lake Como. And we were supposed to do this and we had this training piece where it was like, go give everything and like empty the tank by 1500 meters and the last 250 meters figure it out. Right. That's, that was the goal. And usually you'll go and when you figure it out, like I'd usually be one of the guys who'd be able to help figure it out and move the boat. But I remember at that coming to the end of that piece, just feeling like the boat pick up speed and pick up speed and pick up speed. And I'm like, I am not adding anything to the speed of this boat right now. And it's just going faster and faster. And, you know, it was, we had a lot of really incredible athletes. And I think the, like, even if we were to take Jake and Kyle, who I think were our two strongest, best athletes and put them in the pair, I think they would have contended, even won the pair that year. Um, you know, our spares essentially were, you know, who didn't quite make the eight, won silver medal in the pair. Yeah. So that's, it, it that's was insane. And so it was, it was a good group and the, like, it was a really good group of athletes and, um, yeah, they were, like they all, they all put on something and, and everybody emphasized something differently too. And this is the interesting piece. Cause you know, I would say I'm, I'm more of an anaerobic athlete. And so, uh, but we would have, um, we had a lot of really high aerobic athletes like, you know, Malcolm and, and Jake, uh, and, you know, I guess, you know, Burns and we put, I think we, 
the way Mike would do it, he, he would front end the power. Like you put Kyle, Kyle had just a ton of power too. He had power all around <laughs> by the end. He was good anaerobically and aerobically. He was, uh, he was a machine. But Mike tend to like front end the power in the eight too, which is an interesting reflection on it. So you'd have the like the punchier guys who can get you off the line. He'd put in the you know seven seat, six seat, you know the guys that could take you home. He'd put further back in the boat, and um, you know there's got to be some kind of strategy to that too. Definitely, I mean the 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 complexities about where people sit in the boat is you know I think that's almost its own separate art form. You know, getting that right, getting that dynamic of the crew like the unseeable kind of connection that a that a crew can get is is i think that's it's its own whole separate uh kind of conversation and topic because it's you know it's it's really hard to put a finger on it like this is what works um you know it's it's understanding the athletes and and where they are in the boat and how they work together is really really amazing and i think there's not that many coaches that can uh, can see that and do that very well yeah spracken could do that well and then, you know, part of it was internally directed too. I know Jake wanted to sit behind Malcolm because Malcolm was like, he was just one of these guys like could break, you know, could break 19 minutes, you know, get, get close to 1830 on a 6K, right? Mm. You know, just big lungs, big legs, but still young. And Jake was like, I want to sit right behind him and whip him. You know, I just want to make sure that he's going as hard as he can. Yeah. And, oh. and that was uh, the, and we ended up running, we, we ran a bucket rig for the Olympic race too, which is um, fast. You don't see a lot of boats doing that. And I think partially because, because we had so much power at, you know, at race pace out of 40, we could clear, uh, we could clear our puddles with a bucket rig. Um, so yeah, that, that be- was actually that was it was one of my questions that I want to ask about the bucket rig because I feel like it really helps if you got those two people that you want to stick together and you want to link them up, but then like your risk of the stroke man catching in the bowman's puddle goes also goes up quite mm. a quite a it bit. And does. I think if you watch your race, I think you do just clear it, but yeah, it's, it's you know tight. it is tight. It's very tight. Yeah. You know, it is tight. We were able to clear it. Kyle was feeling like he was getting good water off of, um, you know, throughout the race. The The start was sometimes touch and go, but we cleared it uh, pretty quickly. It was, it came primarily because Spracklin wanted Kyle because Kyle is just so strong and consistent, you know, especially through 2007, 2008. Um, and then when uh, Kevin eventually made the boat. He wanted Kevin to be in the bow seat. Both those guys are port. Uh, Kevin was really good in the bow seat, was able to really, um, you know, you'll be strategic and direct it from, you know, from the bow. He'd do a lot of good things. Even on the start line, he'd go and he'd, you know, he'd tap, <clears throat> he'd tap her boat forward on the start and he'd press the bow against the, uh, the little boot on the, you know, that holds your bow ball so that it would have forward pressure so that when the boot dropped, we would gain just a little boop right off the start. So we always had, <clears throat> you do little things like that, had, mm. you know, had a lot of experience. Um, so he was good. And then, you know, f- you know, for the bucket, you know, uh, Jake, Jake wanted to row up in seven seat for a while. So we switched up, but he was, he was almost too aggressive 
for that role. And um, it, I was, I sat in seventh seat almost to protect Kyle and to just make him feel comfortable. Yeah. Mm. You know, so that seven seat is is tricky because you got to kind of link up and you got to like protect the stroke man from the like the the brutality that's happening behind and also link it all up and and make it kind of smooth and you know you it's like a key position where you bring the crew together. Yeah, and I also you know just to you know you know I, I love the fact you're talking about the crew because actually Lawrence and I wanted to you hear your thoughts on like you know the dynamics in the eight and and the people that you rode with, but definitely. Another thing from the racing, like it's no surprise to me that Kyle Hamilton is sitting in the stroke seat of the eight. Um, you can just watch by the way he rose, like you very at the front, loose shoulders, very level shoulders. And even in the eight moving so fast, there's a real sense that Kyle in the front, you can see his body is so like really letting the boat come underneath him. And, the, you know, the body posture and, and the, the, the way he approaches the catch, mm-hmm. you know, it's just loaded gun and straight off, you know, dropping that blade in, finding connection fast, really efficient body. And then like, that's a guy you want to set up with that kind of, I feel like with that kind of, you know, rowing stroke and then obviously the craziness and then everyone else behind them, they just pile in, everyone piles in and then, you know, you have a rocket rhythm just pounding it down the track. So it's no surprise to me that, you know, Kyle Hamilton was in front because you can tell that guy had the silky smooth skills. Oh, he did. He had, well, Silky smooth, but it had like, so much power and brutality underneath that. And the you know he'd pick it up and he'd pick it up, but he he'd pick up a heavy load. Mm. And I've I've never been rowed to my maximum as when I rowed in a pair with Kyle. And the and I was you know I was nursing a few injuries leading into the 2008 season. Um, so I wasn't able to, you know, be in the paramatrix as much as I wanted, uh, throughout the winter, but when I'd, and what we do is we, we constantly switch up the pairs, right? You different guys would row with different guys constantly. Um, but the, I remember rowing with Kyle and he would, no one has ever pushed me to row that hard in a pair before, you know, I'd gone really fast at one Canadian championships before, and it was usually yeah, I'd get it all on the finish, right? Because I was bow seat. Bow seat, sitting down low, you know, you let everything roll underneath you. And, you know, the stroke seat has, you know, bow seat has advantage at the catch. Stroke seat has advantage at the finish. And so I'd have a stroke seat who would always be like hammering the finish and yelling at me to hammer the finish harder. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I was capable to do it. So he would, like, he'd pick it up. And I'd, I'd go really light and then super acceleration, you know, he'd go hard and, and keep it, keep it on. And so we would go and we were able to really make, and it was like fluid and it was fast, it was quick and it was lively. But with Kyle, um, who was, I'd say another level up there was that he was able to, he was just bigger and stronger and he was able to like pick up a heavier load. And so then I would constantly have to um, keep that load balanced throughout the whole stroke. And the, I remember doing a two by two K with him and just, yeah, I, I talked to Jesus. Uh, it was, it <laughs> That's was the only one you could talk to really, I know it was, you know, it was, um, it was, it was really good rowing. It was really good. Row, like, and what I would say is like some of the best rowing. Cause it's, you know, it's brutal, it's uncomfortable, 
it's so strong yet it has the fluidity that you need to, like to maintain the speed you don't you don't want to lose the speed uh, you want to be you know my old coach Spracklin he would say three things you know length power rate is what moves the boat and uh, you know we had another guy he he made it he rode with us at one world championship Scott Franson won a world championships he contended for the eight didn't quite make it um, great rower, great athlete, and uh, is a coach at Cal now. Um, but he would always have this, you know, kind of smile and a wink. He says, Spracklin's always missing the fourth one, which is don't slow down the boat. And uh, <laughs> and I think that those, you know, length, power, rate, don't slow down the boat. Uh, that, um, you know, Kyle had all of those, all four of those. And, you know, a lot of power, uh it was he, was, he was a really great, he was a really great athlete. And then we have behind me was this guy, Dom, very powerful, very brutal. Again, you know, he's like Jake, you know, big, strong guy. Um, and so that was, you know, he sort of led the engine room. And that's where, you know, a lot of people put emphasis on the five seat for setting up the boat in an eight and wanting that five seat to be the guy to, to do it. But Spracken was very much a fan of the six seat. You know, he wanted to have a lot of aggression in the six seat. Um, so I think Dom filled that role pretty well. And then, yeah. I love how, how we, whenever, like when Rose talk about the boats, they have like these, like, there's very specific seats where we have specific people and like the, the roles that those have in the boat. But then, you know, when you're getting to the top end, and you, you know, when you have a crew that is as good as as this crew that we that uh, the the two thousand eight men's eight, you have this crew where you have so many people, and I think that's probably the reason why the, those top crews are winning by so much is because they have room to play. You know, you have so many athletes that could probably in any other boat be in those key positions, and now you're putting strong athletes in those you know, the, the other positions, the bow seat, the, you know, you're making those seats that maybe in a, in a schoolboy eight or, you know, an eight that you, you don't have the full set, you, you're going to put the weaker guys and now you're putting these guns into yeah. these positions. And then that brings that kind of whole extra element to it where, you know, now you're still talking about the, the seats, but there's so many cannons in the boat that, you know, it doesn't oh, even, yeah, it doesn't even matter really. Well, it was, they were all cannons, right? It's, you know, all cannons in the boat. And the, yeah, you know, the, the seat makeup is, you know, I think it, it is important. And it's, you know, I've, I've rode and I've raced in every single seat in, you know, yeah. in an eight. And they all have their different Definitely. Um, feel. You have the different way that you can contribute. Uh, you have to manage each, each, each seat, you know, differently i wish i wish i was a little bit smaller and could have rode the bow <laughs> bow more it's uh it's actually quite fun and i would say there's nothing there's nothing more fun than rowing in you know in bow seat or two seat in an amazing eight i'd say like mm. if it's got great rhythm and your engine room is clicking and uh, wow that's so much fun uh because it just mm. you feel the speed and the for surge sure. for yeah. sure um and then, so Adam, I mean, I'm, I, I want to, you know, your when you look at your career as a whole, you know, you've been chatting really wonderful things about the Rose and your crew, but, you know, I want to look in your, your career and then obviously, 
the the big the big upset when I look at your career obviously is you know the Athens um, the Athens Olympic and um, I'm interested to hear your your thoughts on 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 that racing there. You know, you guys were world champ, double world champions 2002. You won world champs the next year, 2003. And then obviously going into Athens in 2004, you know, there's there's big confidence and, you know, there's big training on the line. And unfortunately, you know, it was um, it was a, a disappointing result from you guys. And I'm sure, you know, you, there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot um, to unpack there because the turnaround from, you know, 2004 and 2008 was amazing. So I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on like, you know, maybe what do you think happened there, and in when and how did you process that? Yeah, <clears throat> it was a lot. You know, there's a lot going on because you we came onto the scene. You know, it was relatively quiet. Then, you know, we barely struggled to get an eight off in the 2002 season. You know, and that's mm-hmm. when Kyle showed up. Uh, Kyle and Ben, they're like training over at the University of British Columbia. And they showed up last minute, get through them in the eight. Okay, they seem like big guys. Let's see if we can make this thing go. And then we started getting success, right? The, you know, Seville, Seville, we won, you know, it was a crazy race. And I think it benefited us because we had less experience. We won the race at maybe a, a rate 32, rate 31 rate 32 is what we were which is almost unheard of mm. in an eights race but we the the headwind was so strong that year that we just like we powered through so i think the the weather conditions favored us and our favored our inexperience that year but it gave us confidence and then we were able to do another winter of training we went to uh, milan uh, in 2000 and uh and 3 and we won that race but that one felt you know, there was a lot of weight. There's a lot of weight. It's easy to climb the mountain the first time. And because you're, you know, you're just looking at the, you know, you're looking at one crew and no one's looking at you really. Uh, but once you're the reigning world champion, everyone's looking at you. And you're not just competing against one crew, you're competing against the world and everyone's trying to take you off the mountain. And so there's a lot of, you know, effort. There's a lot of stress. Uh, there was, and I think what came out of that, we were stroked by this uh, great athlete, Jeff Powell. Um, but I think he was, you know, his mind broke after the 2003 World Championships. He kind of had classic fear of failure. You know, fear of failure can can hit you in two ways. One, you know, I've been Mr. Perfect Pants for the last while, and I'm just scared of not being perfect anymore. You know, I don't want to not be the winner. Being the winner feels so good, and I don't <laughs> that I don't want to not be the winner ever ever again. And you know, it's training is brutal. Training like destroys your ego. It deconstructs you. It makes you feel like a loser. It makes you feel worthless. It makes you feel <laughs> you know dumb and stupid and not worthy of anything and that's that's part of the purpose of training uh, and it's it's in direct contrast to, you know, to racing and winning and then the other fear of failure is you know i've failed before and i've been you know i've been down low before i felt low in the hierarchy and it's really eaten me up and um i don't want that either you know you know, the whole thing of going out on top so that started and jeff was starting to have uh, some hesitations and he's just i don't I don't know that I want to do this. You know, we've won two world championships. I've proved that I can do it. You know, there's another year of training. Um, like, 
I want to move on with my life. You know, there's other things I want to do with my life. And so I think there is a piece of that too. Like, like what am I doing this for? There's, uh, I'm just doing it for me. And what, what's the Olympics beyond, you know, another world championship? It's just another race with the world. I've already beaten the world. I'm going to do something else. And so that was, I think that, you know, that's what he'd communicated to me. And then also in the training center, people started coming out of the woodwork. You know, we had like Tom Hirschmiller, Barney Williams, uh, a bunch of these other, you know, great athletes. They formed the four, Jake Wetzel. uh, And they started to be very competitive. And Jake and Barney started to um, be very competitive in the pair. And uh, I was rowing with with Jeff. And before that we were, you know, we were Canadian champions, we're fastest pair in Canada. And all of a sudden Jake and Barney had come and they're taking the title. And so we're battling back and forth. And instead of winning every piece and winning it easily and, um, you know, and you know, when you're doing pair battles, if you've really figured it out and it's clicking, you can go at a rate 22 and guys at rate 26 can't catch you. And you just, mm. right. You know, yeah. power and send. Boom, right? It's it's so slick. But then, you know, and then there was and so then and and there's a lot of you know um I'd say cultural, like no in high performance sport, you know, the training culture of a training center or training group can get really toxic really yeah. quickly because a lot of you know, what you want to call type A's, high dominance type people who want to beat each other, you know, I I want to be better than you. You know, it's you know, it's this drive for hierarchy and status that's in each and every one of us. And you're trying to kill each other to get to the top of your own little country groups that you can go and get the top of the you know the international scene. And so the you know there was a lot of like conflict and uh, aggression and um, you know non-support in the you know, within the, and it's, I get, it's natural, but I think after having, you know, being dethroned is never feels good. Um, and so there was, um, yeah. So like, I think there was a lot of like tox toxicity in the training center leading up and to that, 2004. When- when we chatted to to Jake, uh, they also sounded like there was also conflict on like between the four and the eight because it mm-hmm. sounded like they wanted 100%. some of them wanted to row in the four and they didn't want to come in and join the the eight squad kind of thing and then and and you guys wanted obviously everyone the main group is trying to to go for the the eight so there's also this conflict of like the end goal as well. Well, it's conflict. The like the end goal was to, from what I saw it after the. Like when Jake first came out, I think he wanted to be in the eight. He wanted to like, hey, this is a great coach. I want to win, like win a medal. And then um, Spracklin put together the four with you know Tom, Jake, Barney, and Cam, and they like they th- they won world championships. I think yeah. in <clears throat> t- that, in two thousand three, yeah. and so they like they crushed it. And so you know, and dethroning the British four and all that kind of stuff, which is great, great to see. And so then it became clear that, look, we've got really great athletes, a deep group. Let's keep these, you know, this, you know, let's keep the mix and keep the training going, right? Eight, four pair, strong group, 
let's see if we can go get three medals with the sweep program and you know let's beat each other up and try to support each other too and there is you know there's benefit to that it becomes difficult when right you're doing parametrices and you're switching people up and different people are rowing with different people and and the other piece is that you know athletes start especially as they get more mature they want to do you know different cultures would clash. And so we'd have, you know, like, um, you know, Andrew Hoskins, who is one of like, I say the, the, the establishment workhorses of the sprackling culture, which is, you know, you say that we're going to do 10 K I'm just going to make sure I'm going to do 10 and a half or 11 K just to make sure, you know, recovery row, you know, and you know, you say it's going to be at 75% pressure. I'm just going to do it at 80% pressure just to be sure we're rate capped at, at rate 22, I'm going to hit it exactly. And then you'd have guys who are like Jake and Barney, great athletes, but they'd come in and they're like, oh, well, it's rate cap 22. We're going to go 22 and a half just mm-hmm. to make sure that we win. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And, or, yeah. right. And, or, oh, it's a 10K, it's a 10K recovery row. I'm just going to do 8K to make sure that I recover even better because that's what's better for my recovery, just to do less. Yeah. And I, Either approach can can be right and drive success, but it becomes conflicting from a cultural standpoint, and that becomes very confusing, uh, especially when you don't want to do the work, you don't want to do the ten the ten k, and when you when you see that, it all of a sudden um, either creates jealousy, and then you have okay, you remember this being a conflict because you'd have you okay, Jake and Barney win the piece, but they you know they. They strunk out on on the 10k recovery, the, the you know the second row of out of the three rows of the day. They shrunk out of it a little early, and then they're overrating by half a beat. So, but they're like, yeah. And I remember there being a big argument between Jake and and Jeff, and um, <clears throat> you know, two big you know dominant personalities in the training center. And Jeff was like, like, these are the rules. You're not you're not following the rules. And and Jake's like, you just don't fucking know what it you know what it takes to win and you're not yeah. a winner right <laughs> and there's Jeez. there's validness to both points but the i think one of the reasons why we were were so successful you know up until the four came into the mix was that you know everyone was able to buy into the same culture and because the four one had more maturity and experience they started to dictate a culture that was not quite in alignment with the previous one and it created you know i think it created an underpinning of doubt and uncertainty and that was um that wasn't that wasn't good for um for confidence yeah. in, in training which spilled over to racing and then you know from a racing standpoint we could go into a lot of other pieces that may have contributed you know we had great experience we had our uh a gold medalist from 1992 darren barber who worked his way into the boat and raced in the boat we won lucerne with him and him there and then he had a seat but sprackland didn't you know sprackland had a thing against him because he was a little guy or he was i don't know like by a little but he was like a little guy <laughs> who pulls like 550 on the erg um but the <laughs> i don't know or if it was just what it was but they, you know, he ended up having a seat race and got seat raced out of the boat. And the, you know, the co- the main comment he made, we had this this call at the twelve fifty. You know, one of the, you know, one of the magic pieces of uh, of Jeff Powell's stroke 
was like how long and light and linear and quick he picked up the stroke like right at the catch it was just like a like quick load pickup uh, but it, it required everybody to pick up the boat together mm. and it was we, we would poise over the toes that's where we would gather the gathering point would be like quick you know pull the momentum around the finish and you don't feel the glide until you're over your toes and then pick it up and right that's you know that was the rhythm that we established and so we would at the 1250, we had this call time over the toes. And I remember Darren Barber saying, well, it's like, this is the eight race. This is going to be the Olympics. You don't want to take any time anywhere in the Olympic race. You want to be going 100% all the time. You know, rhythm, you've established the rhythm. You don't need any more rhythm. You just need more power. You just need yeah. to keep going. And um, I think we missed a little bit of that. And we had... Um, yeah. And, you know, then we, you know, we kind of had the, this guy, you know, you know, Darren got put out of the boat and uh, this other guy, Chris Jarvis, who, who rode with him, they lost the seat race to um, Ben and Kyle. And so Ben and Kyle were back in the eight. And then we went to, you know, you know, went through the um, super compensation phase where training seemed to go pretty well leading into Athens. Then we got to Athens, big nerves. And uh, Jeff Jeff Powell ended up getting injured in the repishage. No, in the repishage. So we had to, so this is what happened. We were in Athens. The Americans show up and they're like, they're gunning, right? You know, Pete Cipollone, Coxwain, they've got... Uh, um, the Volp in the JR as well. And Volp. Yeah, Volpenheim's there. So they had some really great athletes, very strong athletes. And they, we both break the world record there, screaming tailwind. But America beats it. They just row, row through us the last 250 meters of the heat and um, come, you know, you know, smash us. And so all of a sudden we're like, what? You, we haven't lost a race. You know, like what's happening here? Yeah. You know, one of the... You know, and then we went to the repishage and we you know, halfway through the rep, it was like around the 1250 meter mark. Um, Jeff Powell tweaks his bite, his pec muscle right here, you know, in the, something happens, you know, we're trying to make a move on the Germans or something. And then we go through, get the finish, you know, talk to the doctors, talk to everyone. And say, you know, I think we're still good to go. You know, I remember seeing Jeff stroke and thinking it's not that, you know how I said, like long, light, sharp, like beautiful, beautiful pickup. It wasn't like that. It was off. But I didn't have, you know, I was young. You know, I didn't have the courage to stand up and be like, hey, guys, I, or even like say to Jeff, like, hey, Jeff, I think your stroke's a little off. Maybe we got to move you back in the boat or maybe we got to get someone else in. It was, you know, let's just go with what the crew thinks. And we, the crew didn't think anything. No one had opinions. Um, Jeff was one of the dominant personalities. And all of a sudden he was broken. You know, he'd, he'd always be, he was a fiery guy yelling, screaming, kind of like an yeah. only child uh, complex. Yeah. <laughs> I want it my way. And <laughs> and then we had behind me was uh, Andrew Hoskins, who was like the oldest child. Like everybody do it my way, because I've always bossed people around. And 
<laughs> and so, but then it was, yeah, it, you know, the crew sort of, um, it, yeah, it, it fell apart and the, you know, I think we learned, I think psychologically we lost a lot in that year and I, I've like, I've gone into bigger detail now, you know, then, but I'll try to sum it up. You know, it's, it was the cultural affront with the men's four and their different methods, you know, undermining the confidence of the training because it was so difficult. And that cultural conflict, you know, was, was difficult to manage, you know, that, you know, Jeff Powell, you know, had a crisis of confidence himself, you know, fear of failure being manifested that took him out for a while and then brought him in and out. And then, um, you know, we're, you know, we had, you know, we had people coming in and out of the boat, seat racing, you know, we made the selection. We got rid of Darren Barber, put in Ben Rutledge, got rid of Chris Jarvis, put in Kyle Hamilton. Um, we, you know, and then we got there, we had the injury. Another thing we would say we had, um, we warmed up too long. You know, we were used to like 45 minute warmups on the West coast, whereas different people warm up differently. And especially in hot weather, we weren't used to that. So we weren't used to like dialing down our, our warmup to like 15, 20 minutes on the water. So we would keep, we just kept our like, oh yeah, we, you know, we're the biggest volume in the world. So we can do a 50 minute warmup in mm. 37 degree heat and be good to go. I think that was a big mistake too. So those were, I think a lot of the contributing factors uh, that we had as well as, you know, simple, you know, simple burnout. Uh, you know, I know even myself, I was feeling burnt out from the training, burnt out from the Olympic training. Yeah, again, you know, the cultural conflict that was existing, the, you know, everyone trying to out alpha the other one in the training center, out dominate each other. Uh, the, you know, and I think there's healthy ways to do it. I don't, you, you can't get rid of that because you got to out alpha your, your competition, I think. And there's, there's real magic in that. Um, but, but you have to harness it in a way that's productive. Um, so all that, yeah, all that came together to really contribute to the, um, contribute to the downfall of the eight. Sure. I must say that is, um, yeah, quite uh, even just, yeah. yeah, it's powerful just to listen to it. I must say, you know, hearing and like, obviously it's something you've, you've thought about a lot, you know, it's, it's kind of shaped who you are and, and I'm sure we're going to get into what came next, uh, in the next little part of the story. But yeah, I really just, you know, the one thing that, that really stuck out to me there that I noticed is that you keep going about the culture. And, you know, you have so many strong athletes and you have so many athletes that are, you know, a, an athlete's job is to believe that they're the best and that they are up at the, you know, that they can beat anyone else. And then, you know, it's so important to have all of those kind of athletes pushing in one direction. You know, even in our team, I've seen it before where, you know, you just get a slight deviation and then, you know, all that energy gets wasted by trying to change and trying to like figure the the direction out rather than just driving the ship you know uh, even if it might be slightly off course it's better to just be driving it on on a, together as hard as you can rather than 
trying to correct it or pull it back onto onto course separately. Well, and I think that you know a great metaphor is even our Olympic eight. You know, look at how snarly we rode, mm. right? Water <laughs> throwing up. It was. It's. It's not the the fine example. It's not like beautiful German rowing. You know, long and flicky, flicky. Beautiful. Yeah. It's. You know, it's aggressive, hard rowing. But again, we we committed to a style. Exactly. And we committed to a method, and we were able to you know incorporate everybody in, and everybody was truly buying in. You know, and, and rowing is a sport where it's there's no set formula. Like yes, you have the textbook technique or the textbook stroke that kind of maybe most people want to try and achieve but it's not set in stone it's not something that the, if you don't row like this you're not you're not going to be fast you know there's so many variables there's so many nuances to to rowing that can kind of make speed that it's uh it's what makes the, the sport so beautiful as well yeah and it's so i want to take it forward because now obviously you you got it off to the the fifth place at the games you take the next year, 2005, off. Uh, we saw you got married, kind of had that break, and then came back online. Yeah, got a degree. In, uh, into <laughs> the team break. in 2016, and uh, I mean, it's 2006. So just talk us through that gap, kind of the mental place that you were in in 2005, and then what brought you, you back into the team. So post-failure, like we finished fifth place in Athens, crossed the finish line. We're just like, what the heck just happened and just like no one had any idea like it blindsided us we had no clue we did not see it coming no writing on the wall and we were just collapsed you know after the race we gave everything and there's you know this is the beauty of watching sport because emotions you know, it takes energy to control emotions. And at the end of a race, if you're excited, you have no energy and all that excitement just bubbles out. You've at the end of the race, you're disappointed. All of that just, just comes out. Didn't see any of it coming. We were just like, we barely even, I don't even know how we found the strength even row to the dock and kind of like roll out of the boat. And we're just hugging and sobbing and crying. And we couldn't say anything. We're just no one we're just like no words just mm. like pure mourning you know the death of an you know even worse than the death of an ego i don't even know what it was you know the it was heart-wrenching yeah and so we had after that we kind of break out we didn't you know i think where spracklin fell off on this one he didn't even like call he didn't call the guys he didn't bring people together. He just kind of like everything just sort of faded out. And then everyone was just off doing their own thing next. And so I was like, I got to get out of this. I got to get out of the training center. I was feeling really freaking burnt out from it. And I wanted to do something different. I had this opportunity to go down to Stanford university in California um, Jake Wetzel was the one who ended up pushing me there. He's like, man, and he was one of the best too. You know, great, great mentor and great friend of mine because uh, he's, he's like, you have to have something set up post games. You have to, have to, have to have something set up post games because there's such a freaking vacuum that shows up afterwards. And if you don't, then you're just going to, you know, descend into this pit of despair. 
an emptiness and you it's going to take you forever to come out of it so you have to have something that you're stepping into that's going to drag you forward and so um i went down to you know you know went down to California worked with this guy, Craig Amerconian, uh, worked with these uh, Stanford guys, a lot of young guys. They called me Old Man Creek because I was 24. You know, I was there as I was in a committed relationship. You know, I was, you know, no more, no more new women. I was, <laughs> they're like, what is this? <laughs> and, uh, and the, uh, um, and I was, I was down there, I guess, as a player coach. So I was, you know, it's hopping in the pair with a lot of these young guys, um, you know, university guys. And I was just showing them like this, like, feel this, you know, this is what a stroke would feel like, yeah. you know, stop hammering here. And was able to really kind of lift up the crew. And I was like, I was done with rowing at that time. I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to leverage this Olympic experience into like great university, get a great education. I was studying, you know, geotechnical engineering. I ended up getting interested in biofuels, um, ended up getting, you know, not just athletic scholarship, but getting offered uh, academic scholarships to get, you know, masters and PhDs uh, at the school. And so I was, I was enjoying it. And I was like, okay, this is, this is the path. And so I'm just coaching these guys up and they, they were, they actually lit me up. There are two, actually two, there are two experiences that relit my fire. And I'd say first was these young guys, you know, 19, 20, 21. And I'd hop it like they're, you know, they're decent athletes, you know, close to six minutes, breaking six minutes on the erg, hop out on a pair, they're rough, but then I'm, you know, showing them what to do. Guys like, you know, David Banks, Jake Cornelius, uh, Silas Stafford, we'd, you know, go out and show them how to row and they're still young, they're hungry. And I'm like, I forgot what it was like to feel that I forgot what it was like to, you know, see the world ahead of me and feel that passion. Was, huh. And that is, that was contagious, I suppose a little bit. And the second one, you know, there was a group there in the Bay area uh, called the Kent Mitchell rowing, uh, <laughs> the rowing association named after Kent Mitchell, who's an old coxswain. Uh, he had coxed Con Finley, who was Olympic gold medalist in the coxed pair back when the coxed pair was a thing. And uh, um, he organized a bunch of old national team rowers, Olympic rowers, guys who were in their 50s, 60s. And uh, every once in a while, I was I was slamming, jamming, hammering in the like with the young guys. I'm like, I, I just need some real rowing again. You know, where there's pick and glide, where people actually know how to row. And I'd go out with these old boys and I'd sit in the five seat and I'd just turn off my brain. I wasn't having to coach anyone up. I was just like, you know, I could do the one minute pieces, the three minute pieces, the whatever we were doing that morning. And it was just, they liked it because I was young and strong. I liked it because we could glide and, you know, <laughs> like rule four, don't slow down the boat. Right. Mm. And, uh, and they sort of they painted the path too that hey look you could enjoy rowing for your entire life like there's there's so many people I see who go through the sport and they jump off the cliff and they never touch an oar again and I can't tell you the amount of Olympians I've met who the last row they've rowed that the last stroke they rowed was 20 years ago at their Olympic race and it's it's baffling. Um, and to a certain extent, that that felt like a cop out to me, and that was, um, 
yeah, that was that wasn't what I wanted from my journey. I wanted something that would, you know, that would incorporate into my being that I could hold on for longer and a discipline that I could I could keep for life. And so th- these guys showed the way. They showed what it what it could be like, you know, to just enjoy being fit and enjoy being fit for life with the sport as well as, you know, get back to the fundamentals of uh, of the sport. And so bumping between these young hungry guys and these old guys who were um you know, just fueled by passion. I guess Pat, two different types of passion, right? You know, young passion is hungry, you know, hungry for accomplishment. And then the old guys were just hungry for lifestyle and joy. And both were, um, both were appealing, but still at that point in time, I, I, the Olympics were out of my mind. I wasn't coming back. I was just, um, there was, um, you know, there was some carding money that was on the table through the Canadian system. So if I had certain performances internationally, then I could keep the carding money coming. It would help fuel my education. So I ended up going back to the world championships in 2006. I rode in the eight. We finished like ninth, eighth, ninth, yeah, eighth. Ninth, sorry. Somewhere oh, around fuck. there. Ninth. You know, the Swiss beat us in the eight. <laughs> Come no, on! You, you were beaten by Russia, no Switzerland, and then and then Canada came third there. Yeah, <laughs> third in the B final. And I had like I've had no rage, no rage like the anger that came in because it was I had this was the this was the source of the rage because I had been doing it because it's like I'm just I the only reason why I'm doing this is because I need to get I think I need to get top seven or top eight or something to, to guarantee the fact that I was going to get carding over the next year. And And I needed that money to help. And I missed it. And so we like one, like I'm happy to just go all the time. And I don't care if it's like, like I'm just wired to go. I want to go. I want to, it doesn't matter if it's the B final, you know, this, that's just every race. I want to just see the maximum I can get, you know, that's, that's my wiring. Whereas we had a bunch of guys on the boat were like, oh, I just couldn't get up for the race. Or it's, oh, it's the B final. or uh, uh, I was, And it was just kind of like this whiny, bitchy, like, <laughs> I, it was, I, I, I want to puke just thinking about the culture of that, you know, of that race of, of the boat. And it's just, it really turns me off. And it's like, it's the anti-athletics. And also, you know, I think you, Yeah. Also, what I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the results and like your rowing career, you know, this is your uh, fourth year of international racing you've raced and this is your only the second time you've missed the podium. So, you know, most people's results that we look at, it's like the results are full of the ninths and the fifth places. And then there's the one or two first that are like, those are the, you know, that's what keeps them going, keeps them coming back. And then we're looking at yours and you've got like this, just pristine record and then these like obviously the the two missed ones that are just fire in your veins and like we can see the the passion that is just you know the the miss when you like your expectation is so high yeah no it's expectations were high and you know i've heard it said that you know that winners hate losing more than anyone else and I think that there is something to be said 
you know, with that, you know, there's a lot of guys and especially the top crew, that's something I, I hate losing. I hate it, hate it, hate it, like to my core, to my being, I hate losing. And the, but what disgusted me more, you know, I would have been happy. I would have been happy had we finished that race. And I knew that I had left everything on the table, that all of my crewmates had left everything on the table. And we, we did everything we knew we could. And we finished 10th. And, oh, you know, salute to the Swiss, salute to the Russians, well rode. Oh, that was a great regatta. You know, there there's something to be said about that. But there was, um, I think I was like, I was angry because, like, maybe there was something I could have done a little better. What was wrong with me? You know, couldn't have I fixed this? Isn't there something better I could do? Uh, like, what's, you know, like, what's this pussycat culture? I'm not used to, like, rowing with pussycats. Yeah. I want to row with lions. And the and I remember, like, you know, I was exhausted, and all these thoughts were going through my head, and I just had this rage, like a deep, violent rage, anger, like uncontrollable that came over. And I just started, like, while well, raging, screaming. <laughs> I was, like, shaking the oar, and I was, like, I just wanted to break the oar. And I just wanted to break the boat and I just wanted to break the necks of, you know, my teammates and my competitors and myself. I wanted to destroy everything. And I like uncontrollable rage. And I just started slamming the oar into the oar lock. And I just, I completely destroyed the rigor and the collar of the oar. And it was, you know, it's unsportsmanlike, but I don't know that I could have controlled it otherwise. Yeah, it's, and I mean, you know, rowing, you're really putting like so much in. It's really, it's physically draining. It's mentally tough. And then, you know, what keeps most people coming back is, you know, you do, you put out your best race and whether that gets you uh, first or, you know, first or, or or ninth, it's kind of, it's motivating that you've, you've put out your best and that's what's, what it's all about. Whereas if you miss it, and I, I know the exact feeling, I've done races where you haven't put out your best race and you know that there's, a better race in the in the crew or, or in yourself and you know that emotion is uh, so guttural and and you know that that is much worse than any bad any result can mm. be oh and it's you know it's the expectations personal expectations if you have high personal expectations that's the you know i think that's the driver that was one of certainly one of my key drivers I have a lot of high personal expectations for, you know, how I show up, how I perform and you know, everything's justified and filtered through, you know, the results I'm trying to achieve. And the, yeah, it was, you know, it was brutal. And I was like, after that, I was like, there's no way I'm ever coming back to anything like this <laughs> ever again. Yeah. Right. I'm done. You know, pfft. Done. Donezo. Gonzo. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. Right? That's, I was so disgusted with the experience. Cool. So that's a wrap for part one of Adam Creek. And man, what a banger. And I'm sure you guys are on the edge of your seats ready to listen to part two, which will come out soon for you guys. So, Jake, what did you think? What is your big takeaway? 
I think my my favorite parts of the interview were maybe you know a little bit less on you know the the, the structure stuff, talking about the you know the the racing, the games, although that was that obviously is an amazing part. But I mean, I, I kind of insinuated a little bit in the introduction. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the you know the the in between stuff, the the side tracks that we got down, um, the segways, little segways that we had. Although it was you know it was a it was really good discussions, and I think it was. You know, it's quite a interesting um, exploration in towards Adam's mind and, and his uh, psyche as a, as a row. And I thought that that was very insightful to, you know, how how he um, manifested all of that into the success he brought in the sport. And I definitely, for me, that's probably the biggest takeaway I'm taking from this interview. Nice, for sure. I mean, the way he speaks about rowing is unbelievable. I think the amount of thought that's gone into to his career is just awesome and uh you know, he's just a really good guy. You can hear, you know, all the Canadians. Actually, everyone we've had on the show is just awesome. And, you know, this is a long episode. This is one of our longest um, episodes. We've ever, I think it is the longest episode we've ever recorded. So it just went nearly three hours uh, with some editing that will cut down. And then with part one and two, it also cut down. But, yeah, a huge thanks again to all the support. Thanks for listening. If you're listening, huge thanks. Huge thanks. Tell a friend about the show and uh and share it get uh, more people listening and uh on the patreons you guys are unbelievable thanks so much again for the support and also some of the patrons were listening in live we had jess listening in live to to this audio uh when whilst we were recording so if that's something you want get into to our patrons head over to the patreon page see the different tiers the different uh benefits you get and 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 go and subscribe the support really keeps the show going and yeah if you're listening on the free feed we're already in japan we would recorded this a bit ahead of time so we weren't busy uh, we weren't under pressure whilst we're getting ready for our big races and i hope you enjoy and you'll hear again from us in part two which will come out soon and then again after the games when we're going to have so much episodes and so much content to you so much to go through so much to get through and i think just a bit of closing i just wanted to you know uh punt adam a little bit you know he's got a lot going on he's got his own podcast please go have a look at that he's got his audiobook um and yeah he he does a lot of executive business coaching so please go have a look at him and and support what he does he's been amazing in scheduling us in we had a little bit of scheduling conflict while we're in lesotho trying to get the interview set up and he was an absolute gentleman in uh accommodating all of that and we did a bit of collaboration with him on his Roro Tokyo podcast. So uh, go, you know, go in and, and give him give him your support too, because you know I think he definitely deserves it. That's for sure. His book is called The Responsibility Ethic. Really awesome. Go and give that a listen. And then his um, podcast, as Jake said, is Roro Tokyo. Mainly focused on the Canadian team, but there's still going to be some really cool stuff on on there. So go give that a listen. And I think that's all, Jake. I think we're out. That's a wrap. Sweet. The, the Canadians have been the form crew over the last couple of years. They've been swaggering around the last few days. So the whole regatta actually almost got the medals around their neck, they think. But uh, I never like that sort of uh, attitude by the guys, even though I know their coach very well, who coached me to the first, my first two Olympic gold medals. But uh, our guys have proved in the heat that they're a class act. And it'll be interesting to see what actually happens in, in this. But can our guys do it? Yes, they can.